Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Hello, this is Ken Root. I lived my early life on the plains and brush country of central Oklahoma. We'd get afternoon and evening thunderstorms that my parents watched closely. I became the lookout to the southwest, where a tornado was most likely to be spawned by the largest of storms. When we saw one or were warned by telephone, We fled to a cellar and stayed there until the threat had passed, often a half hour to an hour. On some nights, when the storms rumbled across in a sort of train formation, we'd spend all night in the damp, dark shelter, only illuminated with a kerosene lamp and the sharp spears of lightning outside the small window. When I took my first teaching job in 1972, I moved to the flat and open country about 25 miles west of Oklahoma City, to a town called Union City. I had been there a year and a half when it was hit by an EF-5 tornado. Today's podcast is about that famous tornado from 50 years ago. Some things you don't remember more than 10 minutes, but others, I can assure you, you can remember in great detail for a half century or more. This was one of them. I have with me Larry Nenman, a retired school superintendent who grew up on a farm a couple of miles east of Union City. Larry was one of my high school students in vocational agriculture. Larry, how old were you in May of 1973? In May of 1973, on May 24th, I was 15 years old, but it was two days before my 16th birthday when the tornado hit. Mm. Well, Go back to the beginning here. I'm sure you and your family were warned of tornadoes and had actions that you normally took. And I want to save your major story of being in this tornado until the end because it is gripping. But what are your childhood memories of how to prepare for a tornado? When I was young, we used to prepare for tornadoes and storms we'd go to the neighbors a mile north of us they actually had a cellar and uh by the time the 1973 year hit they had moved and uh they'd moved a few years before that so we did not have a cellar Uh, we took refuge by driving our car in a pit silo and uh ordinarily we didn't do that if we could go to a, a cellar but that was our last-minute refuge, as it was. The Union City tornado is not really famous for how many people it killed or how much property it damaged, although both did happen. But the historical record says it was the first EF-5, and that appears to have happened because of how long it lasted and where it tracked across the countryside. 
Now, you have been a uh, an administrator, and I'm sure talked about these tornadoes in the past. You don't set that far from Norman, do you, where that the Severe Storms Lab is located? No, we actually set about 25, 30 miles northwest of Norman, and uh, the, the, that actually the storm center at that time was very small, and uh, this storm actually helped make it what it is today. Well, they were trying to prove that a storm could be this big and be this powerful. And uh, many people today thought that it couldn't uh, get this strong. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's give our memories of the day before the storm formed. It was an afternoon storm. What's your memories of that day of your life just two days before you turned 16? Well, living on a farm community, we ran a dairy farm, and we had went and got a load of dairy feed that day uh, to give our cows while we uh, milked them, and uh, I had unloaded it, and it was a very, very hot, humid day, and uh, I got done. I drove the pickup up by the house, and I looked to the northwest, and I thought I seen a funnel developing, and of course, I went in, told mom, and she came outside and said, oh, my God, I think that's a tornado. And uh, But the day before that had been just, you know, pleasant. There were a lot of storms further north towards the Kingfisher area, and they hadn't even touched on this storm yet at that time. But they soon would. Well, my memory, Larry, is that the storm formed on an afternoon when school was already out for the spring. I had taken the seniors on a trip and during that trip one of the boys broke some of my ribs when we were playing football so during that tornado i was actually at a doctor's office in the town of el reno about eight miles north but the other thing for me was that i was getting married on the 16th of june of that year to gail klepper a young elementary teacher her parents now deceased lived in a white frame house a couple of blocks north of the school and I want to orient people to the town, and you can help me with this. Basically, the Union is the intersection of U.S. Highway 81 running north-south and Highway 152 that runs east-west. But really, Larry, 152 just ran east of there. Running west was what would you call it, a county road? It it, it was a county road. Uh, 152 actually uh, goes with 81, eight miles south. Kaminko and then goes west to Binger. Uh, but so it kind of turns there with 81 at that intersection. But running west, yes, was a county road that went four miles west and then turned north and went back towards the El Reno Airport. I remember that vividly because I lived just past the curve four miles west, which actually was a good place because it did not get hit. But right. that road could be our reference point because the town is small. And the tornado formed about four to five miles west of town and about a mile north of that county road that tracks through Union City. So the storm had to come from the southwest just slightly to the northeast to hit the town. And from the stories of everybody since that point, it was spotted almost immediately. People were warned. The Severe Storms Lab was out with their Doppler radar trying to get on both sides of the storm. There were storm spotters that were out as well. And uh, an EF-5 tornado, 
as we were talking about, is rare. There's only been a few of them that have formed over the course of the years. But one who observed it closely from his vantage point at WKY-TV in Oklahoma City was a college student who was also a weather forecaster for the station on air. He was really good before his days, really should have been. And his name was Mike Smith. He's become a well-known and highly respected meteorologist and is still quite attuned to severe weather. Larry, do you remember Mike when he was young and on WKY? Yeah, yes, uh, my memory's not as good as it once was, but I do remember lots of people from WKY. Well, I had not met him as of yet at that time, but I did meet him and become lifelong friends after that. And I've talked to Mike a couple of times on podcasts because he is uh, absolutely an authority on weather and lives it and loves it. And um, if you'll bear with me, Larry, we'll play a little bit of what he has to say of the uniqueness of the Union City tornado. What was important about the Union City tornado was twofold. Number one, the National Severe Storms Laboratory had two experimental Doppler radars. And if we could get a tornado in a small area of central Oklahoma between the two radars, we could take 3D measurements of the storm. Tragically, for the people of Union City, that tornado went into that little slice of territory And we learn things about the structure of the internal winds of a tornado that we're still using today. Secondly, the year before, in March of 1972, the University of Oklahoma, along with the Severe Storms Lab, started a student storm chase program because they had these Doppler radars, but unless someone was there to actually document whether a tornado occurred, We didn't know whether they were a step up in terms of tornado warning accuracy. And for the first time, there were two teams of students, one close up, the other farther away, that documented the entire life cycle of the tornado and were using some of that knowledge even today. So the Union City tornado was very much a watershed event in meteorology And Ken, I know a lot of people in Union City suffered, but their suffering was not for nothing. It helped improve the tornado warning system in ways that we're still using today. Now, the storm was getting closer to town, and um, you were still at home watching it from your farm. I take it you watched it pretty closely from that point on. Well, yeah, from a geographical reference, uh, you know, I think it kind of formed about a mile north and six, seven miles, six miles west of Union City and then really touched down about five miles west of Union City uh, and a mile north. And in the first five miles that came east, it only came south about probably three quarters of a mile into the northwest side of Union City. Uh, we lived, for the gauge this, we lived two miles east and two miles south in the river bottom. Well, we had a great view of it. But with it moving like that, we thought there was no way that it was coming towards us, you know, that close. 
Well, when that tornado hit the town, uh, which was a slow process and a big build, it was at its F5 level. And as Mike says, an EF5 not only destroys everything, it cleans up for itself after it passes. And the destruction in the town was such that it just basically wiped the homes off their slab foundation. It threw a pickup through a block wall of a filling station. It destroyed every tree. It ripped through the town in a manner that you had to see to believe because there was really nothing left. I assume after the storm you got to see some of that, Larry, before we talk about what happened to you. Do you recall the destruction? Oh, I definitely recall the destruction. You know, uh, it started on the northwest side town with the Catholic Church, the Catholic Hall, uh, you know, the homes your 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 future mother-in-law and father-in-law were right on the side of it there. Uh, came through the grain elevators, tore, tore them apart, uh, went through a trailer park. Uh, there was nothing left. Uh, I actually... We'll get to that in a minute. Had to be in town a little later and got to see all the destruction. Uh, there was nothing left, nothing. Well, two people were killed. An elderly man fell down the stairway uh, trying to get to safety. And an elderly lady, uh, the grandma of the Carroll family, as I recall, was cut by flying glass. They picked her up and rushed her to an El Reno hospital. And she died after that. Is that your memory? That That's the memory of the two people that uh, we lost was uh, Miss Carol and uh, I believe Corp Sanders was the name of the gentleman that passed in the storm. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've had your hearing aids for the last 17 years, and certainly they made a positive difference in my life. I'd like to ask you something about the modern day, though, and the research that you have found. Is there a link between an uncorrected hearing loss and dementia? Uh, yes, there is. The research came out about 10 years ago from Johns Hopkins University, uh, Dr. Frank Lynn. He found that you are anywhere from two to five times more likely to develop dementia with an untreated hearing loss. And, you know, everyone says, well, how can that be? And when you think about how hearing works, Sound comes into the ear, it hits the eardrum, eardrum vibrates, sends the signal over three little bones. The bones then send the signal to the cochlea that has 15,000 tiny little hairs inside of there. Those little hairs, as they get damaged, will either break off, get brittle, not move as well. The correct signal doesn't get to the brain. And think about it, you know, like, um, you know, radio, TV, any kind of signal that signal gets jumbled, you can't piece together what's being said, so you struggle to watch the show. That is your brain with an untreated hearing loss. What happens is your brain pulls from two areas to compensate for that untreated hearing loss. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait. So cognitive being how we understand, how we converse, that gets actually damaged because it's getting pulled from to focus on an untreated hearing loss. That's where the link to dementia actually comes in. So it's because we're pulling re valuable resources to focus on an untreated hearing loss, it speeds up that, that aging of the brain. So you're anywhere from, even with a mild hearing loss, you're twice as likely to develop dementia. 
Taylor, thank you very much. You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing, 877-955-4020, or online at iowahearing.com. Now, we uh, cut to Larry's area, which, as he said, looked like it was going to be out of the path of the storm. He and his family were there, and you told me that your last refuge would be to get in the car and pull into that trench silo, which really protected you from everything except the top and uh, the end. What happened? Okay. Uh, we were sitting there watching that, and uh, like I said, in the first basically six, seven miles, it moved one mile south. As it came out of town, it turned. And in the next mile and a half, it went east. It went a mile south, which left it one mile north and a half mile west of us. That is where the Lewis Bosler farm was. And we seen it get hit, and we realized then it was coming towards us. But the only way out would have been, we lived on a dead-end road. The only way out would have been to get on that road and drive north, which was certainly an uncertainty because... Uh, we really thought it would still go north of us. Uh, but as we took precaution, we got the car and got in the silo. And the last thing I remember, it came off the hill, and we could verify this by the scorched land. It turned and made a direct hit on our house uh, and got part of the dairy barn and everything there, all the machinery, and came directly right to the silo and over the silo. That point, uh, I was on the floorboard in the front of the seat of the car, and I heard the hood of the car get tore off, and all of a sudden the car lifted in there. And somewhere in there, I vaguely remember it swinging us up towards some trees, and then I passed out. Uh, the thing that saved us and there was my dad, my mom, and my brother in the car. The thing that saved us was we came to rest with the car landing against a fence post on its side about three-fourths of the way tipped over, but not all the way over. That saved my life because when I came to, I was hanging out the front windshield, and uh, I fell on out. As I came to, fell on out, the storm had passed, and uh, we all got out, and it was as calm and still, and it was birds were chirping, as beautiful day as could be, but everything was destroyed. Uh, there was uh, the refrigerator from the house was laying over there by the car, and this was approximately 250 to 300 yards from the house. Uh so it threw it a long ways. Uh, and then when we come up out of the bottom, Tony Alberts, our neighbor, had come by. And that is the first I noticed I had blood running out of my head. I'd, I'd cut my head open. And so uh, Tony took us into Union City, and they put us in an ambulance. And that's why I remember the town, because it was at the corner of 152 and 81 that they put me in the ambulance. And... Uh, Sure enough, uh, you know, there was nothing left of the town, and the ambulance barely could get through there. Uh, 
And uh, anyway, they took me and got my head sewed up, and I was I, I was as normal as I've ever been, and that's not very normal, probably, but uh, <laughs> I, was normal, I was normal as I'd ever been. But, you know, God saved my life that day, and I guess he had bigger and better things planned for me. And uh, it's just a miracle that we lived through that. Well, you have had an exemplary life since that point, as well as your father, who um, maybe you don't want me to put this in, but your father made a serious change in his life. Do you want to discuss that? Well, uh, it, it took a few more years than that, but yes, he did. He 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 became a leader of a Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, you know, uh, really uh, changed his life. Really did. Going back into town, a few little stories that I have. My in-laws were watching the storm. My mother-in-law actually was at home just um, south of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church and Hall were hit head-on by that tornado. So she grabbed things to take them to the basement, and her selection was the little dog, a box of pictures, and Gail's wedding dress that she was sewing. And Annabelle was a, quite a seamstress. So that was the thing she took. She took the dog down to the concrete basement and laid on the floor. And she said when the storm hit, she felt the entire concrete floor shake. And in a few minutes, she said she thought it might be passed. And so she opened the cellar door a little bit and saw stuff flying through the air, which turned out to be bricks, and uh, went back in and waited, and then came out after that. She uh, walked out to her house being moderately damaged, but the church being destroyed, and then all the homes on a cross. And she had a neighbor who was a man with a heart condition, and he was in the basement of his home. And when she got over there, this would have been the John King home, as I recall it, there was nothing left except that basement door. And so he started yelling to get out. And she said, um, we're going to talk a minute first, because when you come out of there, there's nothing left. So I want you to be prepared for that. There's nothing left here but the slab that you're on. And she thought that might calm him down enough. He wouldn't have a heart attack when he came out the door, and he didn't. But I thought that was an interesting neighbor-helping-neighbor neighbor situation, Larry. Well, and that's why most of us found our homes. Uh, you know, as as you know, Ken, we grew up, we were very, very poor. And uh, there were a lot of reasons and things for that. But we had just built a new house about a year before that. And it literally pulled the tile off the cement slab. But yet, in one place, I had a baseball bat laying in the living room, and it never moved it. But everything else was gone. There was nothing left on the cement slab, a few pieces of tile, it yanked the bathtub out. You know, they always say, go get in the bathtub. We found a bathtub about a quarter of a mile from the house where it hit an electric pole and cut the electric pole in half. One of your neighbors 
um, the Dimmer family, they were finding barrels and other things in their wheat field that they harvested um, the following month after that. And uh, Leo told me that one of those barrels was shiny on one side where it had been sandblasted and blown along to the point that that tornado actually polished up that barrel. I know from farming for Tony Albers and finding lots of things out in the field, too, that, yes, uh, it threw some of them big uh, gas tanks at Champlin Station that the men's family owned, uh, I think, half a mile or further, at least, yes. Well, that was uh, the proof that an F5 tornado can exist. Um, And... uh, the stories of people in that town bouncing back from this and the town rebuilding was a big story as well. And just a year later, I went to Channel 4, and they covered that uh, extensively through the years. I'm sure, Larry, you know they've been back in your community several times on anniversaries of that tornado because in its own way, it documented how much damage could be done by an EF-5. But I don't know that it really helped any. You know, if you look at the time past that, uh, there was a tornado that hit Moore, Oklahoma, in uh, 1999, wasn't it? Yes. That that was one of them, and they've had one since, too. Yes. They had another one about 10 years after. Moore, really one of the most um, populated areas, and the word always was where we were that Oklahoma is mostly empty. So the tornadoes form, hit a few barns, tear up a few windmills, and that's it. But in the case of these storms moving into Oklahoma City, there was always a question of whether they would veer away. And I recall the chief meteorologist uh, at Channel 4, Jim Williams, saying that there could be a heating of the atmosphere where a big town is that might deflect a tornado. Well, he didn't say that was for sure, and obviously it wasn't right, because the Moore tornado in 99 did a huge amount of damage. And I recall trying to get through to my brother who lived in Edmond, and Internet was just at the time becoming somewhat useful, and no phone lines could get through when I was living in Kansas City. But I got an email from my brother, and he said, we're okay, but my wife's family, his his wife's family, uh, was hit, and all their houses were damaged. And Junior, which was the second generation, when he went outside, he found a dead infant in his yard. And through the next three days, they found that the parents of that baby had taken it upstairs in their house, which was across the street, not knowing where you should go in a tornado. And they were so badly injured that they didn't wake up for a couple of three days, and they couldn't document where that child came from until then. So there was a lot of loss of life, Larry, but no lessons learned by people who moved in there who didn't realize what a tornado could do. Uh, people that have not been around them in their lives ha- uh, have no idea. I had an old man tell me one time, well, he wouldn't have been afraid of that tornado that hit Union City. And I said, 
you weren't here. <laughs> you weren't here because I guarantee you, you've got to have a plan. And even if it's a bad plan, you've got to have a plan to get low, get somewhere, and get safe. I've never lived anywhere since that had has not had a cellar. We actually built a cellar back and got it built before we built our house back. I recall, however, there was one man in town, Joe Michaliska, who was in his 80s, who watched that storm from his porch. It missed him, but he actually stood there and watched that storm and would vividly talk about it. So that is, I don't know, the mark of of being... (laughs) figuring if my time is going to come, it's going to come. But there were some people that that actually were very lucky uh, to have been missed because one of the things that, you know, can happen is you put the kids and the wife in the cellar and you go out to watch the storm and it kills you. Without a doubt. And and the fact it happened at from about 4.30, it actually hit Union City at 5.12, I think. At that time of day, in the daylight, was a blessing. Uh, if that did came through in the middle of the night, who knows how many people would have perished that day. A lot of people were in the school thinking it was the best protection in town. And there was always talk about if it had hit the gym, would it have done a lot of damage? And I'm sure it would have done a lot of damage, but I don't know um, if they would have been spared. Uh, we can only speculate on that. But you and I know that gym had a lot of concrete and steel in it. I I do know that when they built that gymnasium, and I found this out years later, uh, one of the reasons it didn't hold more people was they downsized it some to make it tornado safe. They, they One of the things that they wanted as a school board at that time was they wanted that to serve as a tornado shelter. And if you think about it, the outside walls on the girls' side of the building, for sure, and I even think the boys' side, too, was big, big cement. And and they were covered by cement bleachers, not by wooden bleachers, but by cement bleachers that connected to the cement wall. So I really do think it was built as a storm shelter, and to be quite honest, probably built as a storm shelter first in a gym second. Well, it didn't have to be tested, um, but there were a lot of people that uh, used it for their protection. In my case, I came into town from the west and ran over power lines as I drove into town going, what has happened, and saw about four ambulances parked at the uh, south end of the cafeteria of the school, and then walked over to a man, and I said, what happened? And he looked at me, and he said, we just had a tornado. And then I went on in, and I found my uh, future wife and her mother and all the presents that were coming in for the wedding were in their dining room, and there was a big tree limb that was stuck into the dining room about 10 or 12 feet but it did not touch anything of the items from the wedding. And then we faced the situation of where are we going to get married because the church was destroyed. So back to the school, there was an auditorium 
And so we married in the auditorium of that school. And later on, Annabelle, my mother-in-law, who was a wonderful lady, received the uh, Daily Oklahoman's Golden Thimble Award for her work on that dress, but mainly in taking it to the cellar to protect it as one of her most cherished items. What a day. Yes, yes. A, a, a great lady. A great lady worked for years in the bank. Great lady. Well, Larry, I can't thank you enough for telling me this story um, and that your future life was in the education field, uh, coaching as well, and you did very well. I saw many of your students write back and praise you as you retired, so congratulations on that, and I hope life is good for you. Well, life has been a blessing for me since then. Uh, I live by the motto, make others better, and uh, that's what I'm still trying to do. I was fortunate enough to be in education for 38 years and uh, served as an administrator for the last 30 at Ryan, Oklahoma. Uh, what a blessing. And, uh, yes, I consider each of my students to have been a blessing in my life, too. Larry Ninman, a survivor of the Union City tornado that happened in May of 1973, 50 years ago. Thank you, Larry. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.